9. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest a little while longer while the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were being killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Amen. So in the reading of God's word, please be seated. Well, if you are a baseball fan, you can go to Cooperstown, New York, and you can visit the National Baseball Hall of Fame. According to the website, you can go back and you can step in time, savor the game's greatest moments, and celebrate the legends who made it all happen. Even if you're not a baseball fan, that sounds pretty exciting, doesn't it? But not to be outdone by baseball, of course, the Pro Football Hall of Fame exists. Basketball has its Hall of Fame. And you can go to Egan, Minnesota to go to the USA Curling Hall of Fame. That's where I want to go. <laughs> Additionally, you have Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You have country music, jazz, blues. They all have their halls of fame. And I'm sure that they're all worth going to, and it's exciting to see the, the various names and the various events, but you know there's a Hall of Fame in the Bible, and, and that Hall of Fame gives us even something more inspiring. You'll find it in Hebrews chapter 11, which tells of the exploits of all the great saints of the Old Testament. And uh, Hebrews chapter 11 ends in verses 32 to 38, mentioning how Others were tortured. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Again, I, I'm sure that there is a great honor to be put into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or to the Curling Hall of Fame. Oh, but to be counted among those of whom the world is not worthy. That's so much better, isn't it? Well, in 1554, John Fox was exiled from, uh, from England because he was a Protestant. Mary Tudor was sitting on the throne. Mary was a Catholic. She earned the nickname of Bloody Mary for a reason. She was very fierce in her uh, persecution of Protestants and putting them to death. He published the first edition of his book, The History and Acts and Monuments of the Church, in, in 1554, while, while in exile. But then, you know, Mary dies, and her half-sister, Elizabeth, 
the first becomes king, uh, queen. And uh, so he comes back to England. He expands his popular book by including martyrs from the early church. And then he looks at other martyrs, not just only in England, but in other places. And in fact, the, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs became the most popular book after the Bible as it described the tribulation and the triumphs of the saints of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a ministry called the Voices of the Martyrs today. This uh, ministry uh, is making known uh, the, the, the suffering of the church in persecuted places or, uh, who are being persecuted in various places around the world. They added 65 names, modern stories of martyrs to that Fox's Book of Martyrs, 65 modern names. There's another ministry called Open Doors Ministry, that also uh, alerts us to the suffering church. It lists 5,621 Christian martyrs, that's 2023. 5,621 brothers and sisters were put to death last year. Christians have been, and Christians continue to be killed around the world. But here in Revelation, we, we are revealed there's a revelation here of what, where they go, what happens to them. So here they are under the altar. Now, we see when the first four seals were opened, the four horsemen go out into the world, and they bring devastations and judgment upon the whole world. That, again, echoes what Jesus said in Matthew 24, remember? Where Jesus told the disciples how about how wars and rumors of wars would happen, how famines and earthquakes would be poured out upon the world. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says something else to them. He said, then they will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another because lawlessness is increased most people's love will grow cold. Now, what we saw last week is that Christians will suffer all the afflictions that come upon the whole world. But now we're seeing additionally to that, since the church testifies of God's sovereignty over the world, since the church testifies of Jesus Christ being its only Savior, the world will vent its anger against God on the church. And as the world turns on the church in hatred, the faith of Christians will be tested through persecutions and martyrdom. Now, why are we hated? Why does the world hate us so much? Do we not pay taxes? Are, are we not good neighbors and good citizens? Do we kick our dogs? Are our hearts hardened towards tormented peoples? Do we not seek to, to give relief to those who are truly suffering? How many hospitals have been built in the name of Christ? Do we not forgive our enemies? These are all good things. We should be hated. And yet the world hates us. But we are hated for no other reason than because 
We love Jesus. We love Jesus, and that is enough reason for the world to hate us. But the question now comes, does, does Christ hate us? Does Christ love us any less when we suffer one affliction after another, then on top of it all, we're hated, treated poorly, and even killed? Does Jesus love us any less? Well, if you haven't read Fox's Book of Martyrs, let me encourage you to go home and, and buy a copy and, and read it. This book shows us just how much Christ loves his church. Christ loves his church even though we are martyred and mowed down by a wicked people. If you read through those, uh, those accounts, many of the martyrs that, that, fought, that Fox describes met their death with joy and with singing. <laughs> he, he writes of some of them as if they were going to a wedding more than to a funeral. And the interesting thing is, as the bystanders watched these men and these women die, they were so impressed by these deaths that many of them also became Christians. Fox shows us how the gospel is even more fully attested to when saints defend it at the risk of their own lives. And that's why back in the third century, as the church was also being persecuted under Domitian, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, wrote, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustices is the proof that we are innocent. Your cruelty, however exquisite, does not avail you. It's rather a temptation to us. The oftener we are mowed down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. So we return thanks on the very spot for your sentences. <clears throat> As the divine and human are ever opposed to one another, when we are condemned by you, we are acquitted by the Most High. And so we read, when this fifth seal is opened, an altar is revealed. And under this altar are the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and their testimony concerning Christ. Now, of course, we know the first martyr of the church was Stephen, soon followed by the Apostle James. By the writing of Revelation, Nero had thousands of Christians put to death, and, and, and according to his words, they were haters of men, because Christians are haters of men.
That's what the incense uh, represented and symbolized, right? And so in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, John mentions how an, an angel was given much incense so that he might add to it the prayers of the saints on the golden altar, which was before God's throne. So again, what we're putting all these things together, this altar seems to be that golden incense or that golden altar of incense. That's just in the Holy of Holies or just before the Holy of Holies, just before God's very presence. So what are we seeing? These saints are in the very presence of the holy place of God. But also Leviticus 4 verse 7 instructs the priest to pour out the blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt off, of the altar of burnt offering. And, and we read that these souls were under the altar. They had been slain. And that brings to mind the bloody sacrificial altar, doesn't it? Well, with that imagery, we can see that their death, their death for the word of God, their testimony of the word of God and, and of Jesus Christ was an acceptable sacrifice to God. Their blood was mingled with the Christ's sacrificial blood. Interestingly, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, In my flesh I do share on, on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's a very strange statement that Paul makes, that, that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does he mean by this? Well, I think that, that Paul was remembering how the Lord stopped him as a persecutor. Remember, after Stephen was killed, Paul, uh, then named Saul, he was going out to Damascus to persecute the church. And as he goes, the, the resurrected Lord stopped him. He, he falls down off his horse, he's blinded, and, and Jesus asks a very telling question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The resurrected, glorified Lord identified with his suffering people so that to persecute them is the same as persecuting him. And then Jesus sent this same Saul, this Paul now, out to the Gentiles to be a witness. Of what? A witness of Christ's sufferings. But Jesus also said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And that's what Paul's talking about. I am sent out by Jesus Christ out into the world to tell people about Jesus. And as I suffer, he is suffering as well. We are in such close communion and union with Christ, beloved, that all your tears and all your sweat and all your blood are as mingled with his, not as an atonement for sin, because only Christ's blood can atone for sin. But our blood is mingled with his as a witness, as a testimony that his blood actually saves and so with that, I think perhaps now is a good time to stop and consider what this word martyr means. Of course, in the Greek, uh, the word is marturos. It, it's a legal term that means to witness or to testify, particularly in a court of law. So a martyr is one who bears witness to something. 
And again, according to Jesus' commission to the church in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he sends us out to the world to be witnesses. Actually, he says, I send you out to be my martyrs. We are martyrs of Jesus Christ himself. That is, we are testifying to the world everywhere we go that he is the Lord, he is the Savior. Now, I know that often we, we associate martyrs with those who seal their testimony with their blood. And in doing so, they are proving that uh, God's grace and God's love is stronger than even the fear of death. But again, what we're seeing here is that all Christians, all of us, you, 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 me, we're all called to be martyrs. If not by our deaths, then through our lives. Indeed, while dying for Christ may be hard, sometimes living for Christ could be harder. I remember when I was a young Christian, I heard a preacher once asked, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Perhaps some of you might remember that. I think that was even on a bumper sticker. But the question is, if you were arrested for being a Christian, does your life show that you really are? Quite often, we are tempted to hide our light under a basket, aren't we? But the point is, if you're living for Christ, if your life is, is testifying of, of his greatness and of his power and of his majesty, of his grace, if your life is testifying of Christ, you can't hide under, under a basket. The light will naturally shine out of you. The light will tell on you. <laughs> And the heavenly altar here reminds us of Christ's own saying, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Beloved, and the, the mighty procession of the church from our Lord all the way down to the last disciple is a procession of cross bearers. When you come to Christ, he lays a cross on your shoulders. And it is your privilege, it is my privilege to bear that cross, even if that cross brings us to death itself. Now listen, your cross will never be as burdensome as his was because his cross was weighed down by your guilt and by your sin. But the cross he gives you, it may be heavy. The cross he gives you may be hard to bear, but it will always be borne up by his power and grace working in us. It's interesting that these martyrs mentioned here in Revelation 6 are mentioned again in chapter 12, verse 11, where there John writes, and they did not love their lives even when faced with death. See, this is what a martyr is. This is what someone who's picking up the cross and following Christ looks like. They don't love their lives. Even when faced with death, they love Christ more. The martyr is one who follows Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. 
And as we live for him, as we die for him, so we'll be raised with him. That's the promise. Now, it's sad to me that so many Christians seem to follow Jesus only partially or only from a a, a distance. They, They give him lip service. But the whole of their lives is not devoted completely for him. They don't alter their lives to show their love for him. They are content with giving him minimal service. They're content with giving him just uh, the, the bare minimum in worship. And they'll do that as long as it doesn't interfere with family or with other pleasures. But again, being a martyr is one who bears the cross. He's already died to himself. And, and so if he should be drugged, dragged into the Colosseum, well, there was a Colosseum. <laughs> if he was to be drugged into the Colosseum and, and torn and eaten by wild beasts, he'd be quite willing to do so. He'd be happy to do so because he knows what Christ has already done for him and who Christ is for him now. Again, the martyr is one who, upon laying down his life for the Lord, says, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. And thus we see these souls under the altar, while they have been slain because of their testimony, are are somewhat representative of every Christian, you and me, as we are all called to live and to die for Christ. But, beloved, as as you live for Christ, and even as we suffer for him and die for him, and I just want to remind you, just want to remind you of a simple biblical fact. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is not an if. This is a when. If you're living for God, if you're living for, for Christ, you will suffer persecution. You're not going to escape it. But as you live for him, and as you suffer for him, and as you even die for him, look again where you're escorted to. You're right there under the altar, near the throne of your king. <laughs> Being under the altar, I think, is rather significant because it tells us that that while we testify of Jesus to an unbelieving, antagonistic, and anti-Christian world, we are always under his protection. Again, we, we read about how those four seals were broken. Great judgments and devastations were poured out upon the world. And, and so with that, the saints will also be tested in their faith. And again... They will be persecuted. But while we suffer tremendous things for his name, and again, some even being put to death, death cannot harm us. We're under the altar. We're under Jesus' protection. Death can't harm us. While the world is being judged, the saints are being purified. The saints might lose their life as the ungodly judges of the world judge them to be unfit for their world. They think it's their world, so we'll take you out of it. They don't realize that this world is the Lord's, but these martyrs are brought into the very glory of the Lord they love. 
And, and so see how these martyrs are, are resting from their labor. They're told, just rest a little while. Rest a little while until uh, the, the full number has been completed. They're resting from their labors on earth. They're set free from all the trials and from all the tribulations that come upon the elect. But, but notice again how their rest is, is, uh, is not taking a nap. They're, they're not upstairs, uh, up there playing games. It's not a place of full recreation. It's a place of rest. But in that rest, they're actively engaged in worship. In verse 10, we see that they're actually interceding for the church that's still on earth. Now, this is not the intercession of the saints as the Roman Catholics uh, would have us believe. Now, uh, it, it's certainly true that we are one holy apostolic church. We are a Catholic church. That is that we are a universal church. What that means is that we who are on earth are united to those saints in glory. We're one church. The saints in glory, that's the church triumphant. The saints on earth, the church militant, but we're one church. And we see that those who have passed from tribulation into glory are, are concerned even for their brothers who are still enduring the tribulations and the oppressions from the godly, ungodly, wicked world. And, you know, remember when Stephen was, was stoned? He prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But here in heaven, he's praying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, now understand, this is not the bitter cry for personal vengeance. These martyrs are crying out from, from the same single devotion that characterized them on earth. God, when are you going to reveal your glory fully? Beloved, each time you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you are praying this prayer. How long, O oh Lord, will you refrain from judging and avenging the blood of the martyrs? Now, we know that God is holy, don't we? And God is righteous, and God is just. He will avenge every wrong that's done, especially those wrongs that are done to his beloved elect people. But sometimes God seems to delay. I mean, after all, it's been 2,000 years since Christ ascended to heaven. When is the Lord going to come? 2,000 years is enough time, don't you think, Lord? Uh, but, beloved, what we're told here is that, that his delay is meant to train us in patience. Our salvation is very dear to him. It's precious to him. Here, the voice told them, be patient until the full number is added. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So, my friends, this is why God delays. This is why Jesus is, has not yet come. He's waiting for the full number of the elect to be brought in. But his eyes are open. And so every time you hear how Muslims are beheading your brothers in Africa or in the Middle East 
Or whenever you hear how a communist dictator is imprisoning your brothers in North Korea or in China. Or when your neighbor throws eggs at your car because you have a Bible study in your home. You can pray along with the saints in heaven that God's righteousness will prevail because his glory requires righteousness to prevail. Again, Jesus told us to pray for our persecutors. Pray for those who persecute you and despitefully use you, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. We should, we should ask God to save them, even as we did earlier in our prayer. Save the persecutors, O oh Lord. Show them mercy. Isn't it a marvelous thing? I'll tell you, there's a story that happened a number of years ago in our, our church. We had a, a mission work in Ethiopia. And while the, the church was worshiping on a Sunday morning, the Islamic group came in and arrested them all and took them all to prison. The pastor of that church was severely beaten. His, his uh, feet were uncovered, and they, they smacked his feet, his bare feet, with, uh, with rubber hoses. They actually broke his feet. Uh, terrible, terrible persecutions that happened to all the saints. But while one woman... Uh, there, there is this one particular woman was singled out. Singled out for some reason. And they kept beating on her, kept beating on her, telling her, will you not give up your Jesus now? Kept beating her. Will you not recite the Quran now? And she kept beating on her. And she kept saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And finally, two of the, two of the soldiers broke down in tears. We see the love of God in you. And they became Christians. They were later arrested themselves, joined the rest, and, and being persecuted, but and perhaps even made worse. But, but that's the great blessing that we have. We pray that God will have mercy upon our persecutors. But know that since God cannot abide with evil, if they will not repent, he will reveal his justice. And that's what we also pray for. Verse 11 says that a white robe was given to each of these martyrs. Now, what is this, in, now what is this white robe? It's very interesting. There, there is a, in, Ro, in Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 7, there is this very interesting dialogue that took place. John sees this vast multitude of people wearing white robes with palms in their hands. And he was told that these are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these white robes signify how the martyrs were justified and made righteous. But you know what? Their righteousness is not because they died for Jesus, but rather it is because Jesus died for them. That's the testimony of the saints. Martyrdom is certainly a high honor. It's a great privilege. But only the blood of Christ is our sure hope for eternal and true righteousness. It's only the blood of Christ that washes us pure to make us righteous. And so there's that element of, of the white robes, but also white represents purity. Just as a virgin bride wears white on her wedding day to symbolize her purity, so we see these martyrs wearing white. That means that while they were under persecution, they did not give into the spirit of the age. They did not compromise with the world. They remained faithful to the Lord and to his word. 
The, the, the world condemned these martyrs, again, as being enemies of mankind. The world condemns martyrs as being blasphemers. But these white robes rescind the verdict of the world. And they symbolize the saints' vindication. But also, one more thing. Do you remember the promise that God, or Jesus gave to the church in Sardis? He told them, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life. White is the color of victory. These white robes say, though they were hated, though they were despised by the world, though they were judged as hapless fools, slain in, in utter weakness, here they are, victors. More than victors, in fact. Jesus gave the promise, and here we see the promise come true. He is faithful. That's the message here. Jesus is faithful. When you go through trials, when you go through persecutions, when your tears are running out, they become your bread, know that Jesus is faithful. He is to be fully trusted. The victory over the world, the victory over death, is here symbolized in these white robes. You, my friends... Martyrs of the living God are victors. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said that there would be a terrible duel between the godly and the ungodly. The ungodly would sorely persecute the godly. Ah, but then we read how the godly would have the ultimate victory. And of course, that battle uh, culminated with, with Satan instigated Jesus' death on the cross. But Jesus had a greater victory when he rose from the dead. And my friends, we are engaged in that same warfare. We see that in Revelation. And, 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 and here in chapter 6, while the devil seems to have the upper hand, persecuting the saints, putting them to death, do you not see we still have victory? Again, I want to encourage you with this. Death cannot harm us. So many people are afraid of dying. They're afraid of death. Don't be. The power of the resurrection fills our hearts with joy, and it should fill our hearts with boldness. We can face death triumphantly. It doesn't matter how it comes. Do you remember not that long ago I, I mentioned to you how John Patton uh, 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 a pastor in Glasgow wanted to go to the South Pacific and an elder told him, oh, well, if you go to the South Pacific, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And you remember his response? Well, you're going to be eaten by worms. What difference does it make how you're eaten? <laughs> what difference does it make? What all matters is, are you living for Jesus Christ? Are you living for his glory? Are you willing to lie down your life telling people that he is worthy? Imagine, again, we're going through Job and, and, and Sunday school. Imagine his sorrows as he endured the loss of all his wealth and, and his family and, and all that in one day. And then his health was taken from him. And to make matters worse, his wife told him to curse God. His, his friends aggravated his woes by insisting that his suffering was because he somehow sinned. And yet Job survived all that. And the devil uh, discovered that he was no match for Job. Friends, 
You're no match. Or Satan is no match for you. You who carry the cross in your soul. Satan is no match for you. There are many things the devil in the world has that certainly look shiny and sweet. And it's tempting to pursue these things with all your heart, isn't it? And what does Christ offer? Christ offers the cross. Following Christ means you will suffer. Being a Christian means that you will shed tears and you will have toils and sorrows in your life. And then it could mean even the hatred of the world and death. Why choose Christ over the world? The world's toys are shiny, they're pleasant, there's many of them, but what does Christ offer? Sorrow and tears. Why choose Christ over the world? Why choose the sorrows and the cross over the shiny things of the world? I'll tell you why. Because in a very short time, the cross will be exchanged for a crown. The sorrows and the sufferings will give way to glory. Tears and, and toils will be replaced by joy and, and rest. Do you not know, beloved Christian, death is only a door that ushers you into the immediate presence of Jesus? And what does Jesus do? He puts the right robe of victory on you. He gives you the crown of eternal glory. The modern things that men make of idols, gold and sex and recreations and careers and country and prestige and spouses and children, all these things are wonderful things and, and they, they are created by God to give us pleasure. But they will all be lost in death. Why count on them as being so great when the uncreated eternal love of God and the glory that he promises has heights and depths and lengths and breaths that cannot even be matched by any of these small earthly things. Oh, but pastor, it hurts to follow Christ. Aye, it hurts. But you not know that the same thorn that pricks your finger and draws forth blood produces sweet-smelling roses? You know, my Lord has a way about him. He knows. He knows how to make joy and gladness spring out of affliction. He is worthy. He is worthy. So I'm calling to you today. Carry the martyr's attitude with you in your hearts. Die to self. Pick up the cross. Follow him. You do so with his grace. You do so in his strength. And, and because, here's the great thing, because the cross has its victory in Christ, you can taunt death. Oh, death, where is your victory? <laughs> oh, death, where is your sting? The victory is in Christ, and you who are joined to him are made more than conquerors. That's what Revelation 6 says. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that... Uh, that in Christ we have a great victory. That in Christ we meet death, but death does not defeat us. Death puts us into a grave, but the grave can't hold us because even as it had to release Christ our Lord, so it will release us on that last day when he calls us out. 
Lord, we thank you that we have such great hope. And that while the world hates us, while Satan terrorizes us, you love us. And you carry us in your bosom. We thank you that the martyrs are under the altar where they are safe. We thank you that we're in Christ where we are safe. Father, we pray that that safety would give us boldness. That safety would cause us not to to fear. That that glory that awaits us would cause us not to compromise with this world or to seek the things of this world. To enjoy them, yes, but not to love them unto death, but to love you above all. Oh, Father, make us this way as we desire you, desire to see you, desire with all our hearts to be in your presence. Amen.